Okay, well, thank you, Franco, by the way. Thank you, Board of TLTF, and thank you guys for showing up. And it's always a blessing and a privilege to get to teach. And so I want to start by saying, you know, I'm going to cover a lot of ground today. Um, I've been working in Lamentations now for five full months, and there's a lot of commentary in the REV. So don't feel like you've got to take notes on everything. A lot of those notes are already written, and they're in the commentary of the REV and in the introduction to the REV, the Revised English Version. And if you don't know about the REV or how to get to it or how to utilize it, uh, any of us from Spirit and Truth and then people like Franco and Mark and all those people can show you how to do that because it's quite a powerful tool. So let's talk about Lamentations. First of all, I'd start with, you know, I was very desirous of translating Lamentations with Bill Slagle, and I think we worked for months on it, and also for writing commentary because these are difficult times. All you have to do is read the newspaper and know that, I mean, people people are having friends and family members pass away, and there's grieving there. People are losing money, the in inflation, people are losing their, their spending power. There's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of grief. And so it's very important that we know how to grieve and groove, grieve in a healthy manner, what's healthy and what's not. And Lamentations is the only book of the Bible who's, that's about grief. I mean, literally the whole book. And the way that Lamentations is presented it isn't presented doctrinally like this is the way you grieve. Instead, what it does is it shows you grieving people and it lives for us what they're going through, the kind of things they're thinking, the kind of things they're saying. And we literally grieve with them through their eyes. And in that way, we learn and get mentored in grief. Now, I want to talk about the structure a little bit of Lamentations. And Franco, can you throw... That slide up, please. There it is. Let's see. Okay. And you see at the top, it says the book of Lamentations is an elegy about grief and grieving. And an elegy is not to be confused with a eulogy. Eulogy comes from the Greek EU, which is a prefix for good, and logos meaning good. No, a eulogy is a good word that's spoken generally over a dead person at a funeral. That is not an elegy. An elegy is, like it says on the screen, a poem of deep reflection, typically, but not always. It's a lament for the dead. In Lamentations, you have both a lamenting for the dead and also lamenting for the circumstances that God's temple has been destroyed, God's city has been burned down, that kind of thing. So Lamentations is an elegy, and it's unique and it's helpful in what it shows us about mourning. Okay, Franco, thank you very much. So the very first elegy in the Bible, the, the, the first one that we can really recognize, is David's elegy over the death of Saul and Jonathan. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 17 to 27. And, you know, you start with how the mighty have fallen and that kind of thing. But in that little short, what, 11-verse elegy, you don't really get a chance to learn what grief is like. And that's what Lamentations does. And with all of the sadness and grieving in the world today, it's important that you and I, as Christians, as mentors, as ministers, understand what the Bible is trying to tell us about grief so that we can help ourselves, so that we can help other people. So I'm going to start with talking about five things that we learn 
from the book of Lamentations. And remember that it's uh, it's five chapters long, and the entire book is about grief. There are no breaks. The entire book is about grief. So one thing that we definitely learn from the book of Lamentations is that grief is okay. Grief is okay. It is okay to grieve. In fact, we learn from both the Lamentations, Romans, and medical science that it's not only okay to grieve, it's emotionally healthy to grieve. And in fact, if you have tragedy in your life and you're trying to, I'm going to keep a step over look and I'm going to lip and I'm going to buck it up and I'm not going to feel this sadness, it will come out in some other way. It'll come out as a headache. It'll come out as some kind of susceptible disease. It, it'll come out as, as a, a change in the way your heart functions. How are you hard with other people? That kind of thing. Uh, grieving, it's in the Bible. It's a necessity. It's emotionally healthy. And that's, that's important to know that it's okay by people. One of the questions as I was, I was engaging lamentations, I've been a Bible teacher for 53 years. I've never taught Lamentations until this year. And I had to ask myself, why is that? And I think it's because I was uncomfortable with grief. I didn't understand grief. I didn't understand how to talk to people about grief. And and in engaging Lamentations, I've learned so much. And, you know, for example, in, in our culture, don't have funerals anymore. We have celebrations of life. See, that can really short circuit how we think and how we function physiologically. There is a time to mourn, says uh, says the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's really true. And Lamentations is about that. Um, and it's astounding. Like you could go to a funeral, and I've been to a lot of funerals in my life. And you can go to a funeral, and here's a a woman who's lost a son, or she's lost a husband, and she's crying. And you go up to talk to her, and she wipes her tears and says, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry." It's like you're kidding me. You just lost your son. You're sorry, you know? No, you don't. And let me cry with you, because that's what Romans says: cry with those who are crying. Lamentation shows us right away that grieving is okay. Beyond that, it's even emotionally healthy. Second point I want to make. Another helpful thing about Lamentations is by reading the book and putting ourselves in the place of the people who are speaking, whether it's uh, daughter Zion, Jerusalem, daughter Judah, Judah, whether it's the narrator, who I believe is Jeremiah, that you learn what it's like to experience grief. And we'll look at this a little later in the teaching, but grief comes in waves. You know, for example, when you, if you lose a really close friend, you know, you might cry and weep and be sad. And then, you know, a few hours or a day later, you're feeling kind of normal again, and you're thinking, wow, I'm, I'm really through this, and then, man, something can trigger, and you're right back in the depth of tears or in the depth of feeling sad, that kind of thing, that grief comes in waves. Psychologists even call this grief waves, but we see that in Lamentations, and as you and I look at Lamentations a little later, we'll actually see the waves in Lamentations, and it's important to know that because Sometimes, you know, it could be 
three, four months after a loved one passes away and something happens and you find, your, find yourself completely broken down, crying, unable to really think for a while. And you're thinking, what is wrong with me? Oh, my gosh, I thought I was over this. I'm such a mess. And it's like nothing is wrong with you. You are grieving. This is modeled in the book of Lamentations. And the better we understand this, the more empathy we're going to be able to have for people, the more we're going to be able to help people through their difficult times. And if we go through a difficult time, the more we can help ourselves. Third thing that Lamentations does is as you read it, it, it reveals a whole kaleidoscope of emotions because people going through grief have that. You know, there's, I mean, some of the, some of the emotions that are in lamentations are incredibly deep emotional pain, sadness, anger. The anger is often expressed in hyperbolic language and it comes out as, you know, a lot of it is blame God. But God, this is your fault. Why didn't you do anything? You know, then you blame others. Well, so and so should have done something and they blame yourself. Um, you know, so there's, there's emotional pain, sadness, anger. Uh, blame. And then there's hope. Every once in a while, you know, you're grieving and then, you know, you kind of clear up your sniffles and you're like, you know, but I know he's going to be in the rapture. I know he's going to have a brand new body, you know, and you, you kind of get real hopeful. And then <laughs> a couple hours later, you can be in in, a, in the depths of despair, crying again about the thing. And the, the Lamentations models exactly this kind of behavior and tells us, I mean, what models is, what Lamentations is doing is it's modeling human behavior. So when we see it in others or we are experiencing it ourselves, we're not down on us or down on them. We're not like Job's miserable comfort is, oh, you got a secret sin. Or what happens sometimes, uh, especially in our Western culture, is we're so uncomfortable with grief. That if somebody else is grieving and let's say it's been a couple of weeks, we're like, when are you going to get over it? And we don't say that for them, although we, we kind of tell ourselves we do, but we say it because we're uncomfortable with it. But you know, one of the things you learn about grief is the Bible never, ever puts a terminus on grief. It doesn't say normal grieving is two months or normal, normal grieving is one year. Or normal grieving is or whatever. All the only instruction about grieving for the helper or counselor or comforter is Romans 12, cry with those who are crying. And if people, we, we know there is some unhealthy stuff that people can get into and you learn to recognize that. But the time you're feeling grief is not necessarily unhealthy at all. So we need to be aware of that, that Lamentations shows us this um, tremendous range of emotions. Um, so another thing that's intriguing about Lamentations is it doesn't end in an up note. And that's one of the things that understanding about the continuation of grief. And by the way, one of the reasons that we think think that grieving should end pretty rapidly is because we're trained to think that way because we've been watching TV since we were kids. I mean, the TV was already invented before I was born. And, you know, so people are watching TV shows and, and TV, you know, the show must go on. So, 
you know, here's like a cop show and this policeman loses his partner, you know, and he should be in deep grief and people come up and pat him on the shoulder. Well, that was really too bad. And he goes, yeah, that was a really nice guy. And then they get on with the show and we think that's grief. It's all fake stuff. And unfortunately, if we get sucked into it, you know, it's like the Matrix. We're, it's, it's so much a part of us. It's so much around us in the, on the TV and the radio, the movies on the, on the newspaper, you know, that there's a big death on, on, you know, on Monday. And by next Monday's paper, it's all in the past, not even a story about it, that kind of thing. Um, but we, we need to be aware that, uh, that, that, um, Grieving can continue, and we see that in Lamentations, and we'll, we'll actually, when we get into Lamentations, I'll show it to you as chapter 4 ends on a hopeful note, and chapter 5 begins, and you're right back in it again. Uh, but Lamentations does not end on an up note. <laughs> you keep thinking, well, when, the, when are things going to turn around? And you read through the last verse of Lamentations, and they never do. <laughs> they never do. And that's sometimes how we feel if we're, being a caregiver to someone who's grieving. And then the fifth thing that I want to point out is Lamentations is an interesting book in that God never speaks. You can start in Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1. You can read through Lamentations chapter 5, verse 22. And in the entire book, God never speaks. And that was a revelation that came to me in the night. I don't know if it was revelation or just my mind working or whatever, but, you know, I'd been studying the book of Lamentation for months, and and I just, I, I woke up one night, and I just had this, this kind of awareness. It's like, wow, God never speaks. And, you know, that's how it feels in tragedy. When you're in the midst of this horrific tragedy, um, you know, I knew a, a person whose house had burned down. Why didn't God talk to me? Why didn't God warn me? Why didn't God, you know, and and so many times we feel when we're in the midst of tragedy, like, why wasn't God there? Why isn't God talking to me? And that's such a natural feeling is a part of grief. And if you're going to be a caregiver, you need to know that's a natural feeling. You know, you, you don't jump on the person. What? I'm sure God was there. Don't say God wasn't there. You know, I mean, we can really shoot ourselves in the foot and we can be like Job's miserable comforters and be miserable comforters because we don't understand what we're dealing with. And lamentation helps us understand. And one of the things we need to understand about grief is that in many, many, many situations, the person feels cut off from God, like God isn't speaking to them anymore. And in lamentations, all five chapters, not a single verse, God never speaks. And I think, again, that's a lesson where Lamentations is mentoring us about grief and walking us through grief. So those are my five points about Lamentations that I wanted to run through. And summarizing them again, it's okay to grieve. Lamentations tells us what it's like to experience grief. Lamentations reveals the range of emotions in grief. Lamentations does not end in an up note, and God never speaks. Now, in the book of Lamentations, the writer is never mentioned, is, is never named, rather. But the conservative Christians have believed for, well, ever since the Septuagint was written, conservative believers have always felt like Jeremiah was the author. In the introduction to uh, Lamentations in the REV, I give a bunch of reasons why the conservative scholars and myself included believe 
that Jeremiah was the author of Lamentations, but I don't want to get sidetracked to go over that right now. It's not germane to understanding Lamentations, but if you're interested in in evidence for why Jeremiah was the the writer, then that is in the introduction to Lamentations. Another thing you need to know about Lamentations is it's Hebrew poetry. If you read Lamentations in four different Bibles, in, in some of the verses, you just walk away saying, do, do these people understand Hebrew or not? I mean, how in the world could they be so far apart in their translation? And like any poetry, in, in American poetry, this is true too, um, verses are clipped. Sometimes verbs are left out, nouns are left out, um, objects of the preposition are left out, that kind of stuff. And so the Hebrew poetry of Lamentations can be difficult to translate because sometimes there's important words <laughs> that are left out of the sentence and you kind of have to decide what you'd put there. And also, as is true with poetry, sometimes the, the strict lexical meaning of a word gets stretched. And that's where someone has to be a um, really um, a, a, a speaker of Hebrew. You can't just do uh, lamentations from a lexicon. And this is a privilege to work with Bill Schlegel, who taught Hebrew at a, at a college in Israel for 32 years and really, really, really understands the language and speaks the modern language completely fluently. Uh, but it's, it's very poetic and it's acrostic. There, there are large parts of it. For example, the, uh, chapter one has 22 verses. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And the first verse starts with Aleph. The second verse starts with Beth. Third verse starts with Gimel. Fourth verse starts with Dalit. Right on down through the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The second chapter also has 22 verses. Also starts with 22 letters, not in perfect alphabetical order, but with 22 verses. The third chapter has 66 verses. Each one, three of three of each letter starting that in chapter four, again, 22 letters. Um, and, but again, they're not in strict alphabetical order. And then chapter five abandons the acrostic um, and doesn't have the acrostic format that the other four chapters do. But just so you're aware, a native Hebrew writer would be a, kind of astounded at the pattern that Lamentations is forming, and it it pulls you into the book. Um so um, another thing you have to be uh, cautious about or aware of if you're really going to understand uh, Lamentations is the speaker change. And this one I want to show you. So let's go to uh, Lamentations chapter 1. And in Lamentations chapter 1, we start with the narrator, who, like I say, I think is Jeremiah. In verse 1, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. And then Jeremiah goes on to verse 11. And in verse 11, all her people groan while they search for bread. They have traded their pleasant things for food in order to stay alive. And then speaker changes and the speaker now becomes the one who's called daughter Zion, which is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is portrayed as a woman by the figure personification. And she's called daughter Zion and daughter Jerusalem. And then Judah itself is portrayed as a woman and sometimes called daughter Judah. So all of a sudden, right in the middle of verse 11, 
you have daughter Zion take over and speak. Look, Yahweh, and consider how despicable I have become. And so we have to, as we're reading uh, Lamentations, we have to be aware of the speaker change. And again, you don't have to write all those down because I have a bullet point list of the speaker changes in the introduction to to Lamentations in the REV. Um, Just added that today, by the way. Uh, So trying to constantly work on the commentations. So that the the speaker change is is worth noting. Now, when we're we're reading, remember that, that Lamentations is trying to give you a picture of the emotion the person is feeling. You're literally, you have become Jeremiah who was in Jerusalem when it was attacked. He spent time in jail. He was beaten. He spent time in the stocks, uh, all because of his prophetic ministry. Uh, and then you have Jerusalem itself, daughter Zion or daughter Jerusalem. She's burned to the ground. The temple is destroyed, that kind of thing. So then um, these, these entities talk. So we're in Lamentations chapter 1. Look at verse 13. And here's daughter Zion, and she's portraying what it feels like to have been conquered by the Babylonians. And she says in verse 14, or verse 13, rather, from on high, he, which is God, has sent fire into my bones and it overcame them. And if any of you have ever had a bone break or anything like that, um, there it's horrifically painful. Uh, my daughter fell just recently last year and broke her, her upper arm in two places, and it was incredibly painful uh, for a long time. And so daughter Zion here is going to express the pain she's feeling like it's fire in my bones. Interestingly enough, that's a um, common enough thing. If you look at Lamentations chapter uh, chapter 3, Lament chapter 3. Now, Lamentations, this is not daughter Zion speaking. This is uh, Jeremiah speaking, the, the narrator speaking. And in verse 4, um. Jeremiah, who's in Jerusalem and is experiencing the famine and experiencing all the death, says, verse 4, He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. And, of course, that God didn't break Jeremiah's bones, but he's expressing, he's trying to grasp for, you know, yeah, I can say, you know, hey, my feelings are hurt, or yeah, hey, I'm, I'm sad, or Hey, I'm really hurting. Um, and these things can fall short when you're trying to express the greatness of the, the pain you're feeling. And so, so Jeremiah just says, he has broken my bones. And you can just feel the pathos coming off the page. And you're going, wow, you know, because you're a caregiver with somebody. And let's say they've had a friend die and they're trying to tell you that they, they hurt inside. And then they're grasping for, how do you communicate to your caregiver how badly you hurt? And you're going to hyperbolize it in some sense. You're going to make a statement that that captures the pain. And for Jeremiah to say, he's broken my bones. It's like, I've broken a bone or two and it hurts like crazy. <laughs> my daughter broke burn. She was in pain, bone. She was in pain for weeks. This is a great way to express and get people to 
feel what, where you are. Um, another one that I, I particularly like, and there's a lot of these, and you can imagine we'd be here all night if I taught every verse of Lamentation, so I kind of have to pick and choose. But go to chapter 4. This is one of the more picturesque uh, verses that I really like. Um, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 19, uh, it's Jeremiah here. Uh, writing in first person with along with the people of Judah. And he says in verse 19, those who chased us. So he's talking about the Babylonians. And here comes the Babylonian army. You know, the first thing they did was not to take prisoners. I mean, both Jeremiah and Lamentations and Ezekiel make it very clear that, you know, if the Babylonian soldiers, when they came, if they met especially able-bodied men, they just killed them. Those who chased us, says Jeremiah, were swifter than the eagles of the heavens. They hotly pursued us on the mountains. They laid wait for us. When he, and when he when he says they were they were swifter than the eagles of the heavens. Well, of course, the Babylonian army, they, you know, they weren't swifter. In fact, the vast majority of them were on foot. They didn't even have horses, you know. But I'll tell you what. If somebody is running after you with a sword and you know that if he catches you, he's going to kill you, sudden it seems like they're running really fast and you're not doing so well. So you you express this feeling by saying, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they're coming so fast. Those guys are swifter than eagles. And they, again, expressing the pathos, it's not literal, but it's it's communicating your your feelings and if caregivers understand this when you're with somebody who's gone through great tragedy the way they're talking may seem crazy but pay attention to it because it's expressing how they feel they're not they're not trying to be you know like, like Mr or Mrs encyclopedia they're expressing how they feel and we've got to be aware of that another thing that the um the the Lamentations does is it paints word pictures that communicate uh, communicate feelings and there's some beautiful ones in here. Uh, look at Lamentations chapter one again, um, and in verse eight, um, you know, occasionally acknowledges her sin, and and when she does, then there's great shame and embarrassment over fact that, you know, her prophets were in her and her priests and her leaders saying, oh, the Babylonians can't come in here. The temple of the Lord is here. God loves this temple. God will protect the city. And then he doesn't. And so now there's there's great shame. There's great embarrassment. There's great hurt. How does she express this? Verse 8, Jerusalem has sinned. Therefore, she has become an unclean thing. All who honored her hold her in contempt because they have seen her nakedness. In other words, basically, she's like a woman who's been stripped publicly. And now she's, everybody's just staring at her body. And she herself groans and turns away in shame. So it's trying to communicate the shame that this this woman who's, you know, and a lot of times in grief, we have participated. You know, we have done less than we could have done, or we did something wrong that caused hurt or disaster. And there And there is shame. You know, and so it's trying to communicate that it feels like a woman who's normally well dressed and well cared for, and all of a sudden she's stripped and, and naked in public, and everybody's staring at her, 
And then it goes on in verse 9, her uncleanness is on her skirts, talking about her menstrual blood. And again, there's it's very embarrassing if you're a lady and you have a menstrual bleed and it gets on your clothing and you're out in public. Um, you know, that can be incredibly embarrassing. And it's trying to communicate that feeling um, of embarrassment and shame that Jerusalem was feeling because she had, you know, listened to um, listen to the priests and the prophets, the false prophets and that kind of thing. Well, let's go down to chapter 1, verse 15. This is um, another word picture that I thought was particularly graphic. Verse 15, the Lord who is in my midst has tossed aside all my many men, mighty men. He has called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trampled virgin daughter Judah like grapes in a wine press. And if you if you understand how the grapes would be thrown in a wine press, and then it was a jubilation time because the, the there was enough grapes to actually have a harvest. Because you you know if you had one or two clusters of grapes, you didn't put them in a wine press. But if you had an abundant harvest, then you put it in the grind wine press. So it was always a time of jubilation, the, and the the jubilant people that are tromping on the grapes, and the grapes meanwhile are bleeding. And even in, in the Torah, in one place, it's, it speaks of the blood of the grape. And so the grapes are bleeding. And, and of course, the blood is flowing out into the vat that's going to catch the, the grape juice for wine. But the point is, she says, this is how I feel. You know, you've got the walls of Jerusalem and you've got the people in there that are trying to get away. They're trying to hide. And here come the Babylonians and they're just killing, 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 killing. And the blood is pouring out. And so you have this picture of a wine press and the grapes being trampled and the blood of the grape flowing out. And that's the picture that's being portrayed here of Jerusalem, that how how daughter Zion is relating personally to what's happening to her and how horrific it is and the feelings that she's going through. See, and as caregivers, then we need to be aware that why does God do this? Because this is, the again, the way people in tragedy do. Many times they'll break into word pictures to describe what they're going through and that kind of thing. I want to share one more with you. Let's go to uh, Lamentations chapter 2, verse 6. And you guys are probably familiar enough with biblical uh, customs to know that, uh, you know, there was no police force in the biblical time. And so everybody was responsible to protect their own stuff. So if you were a farmer and you had crops, you know, how did you keep people from coming and taking your crops just as they were getting ripe? Well, you built a little booth in the middle of your vineyard or the middle of your orchard or the middle of your grain field. And then you went and lived in it, slept in it through the harvest. And then the booth was totally worthless. You built it out of just sticks with a little probably straw top or something or leaf top. And it just kept the sun off you and allowed you to, to sleep outside of the dew and that kind of thing. And these booths were simply knocked over, destroyed, and nobody cared about them. And that's here's Jerusalem. It's the temples burned to the ground. The walls are knocked down. The houses are burned. The people are killed. How, how does how does the person feel in Lamentations two six? He God has wrecked his booth as if it were a booth in a garden. 
He has destroyed his place of assembly. And what he's doing is the temple, which is supposed to be this wonderful place. And, you know, that's where God dwells and where the priests go and all that stuff. God treated his temple like a booth. He just knocked it over. He just discarded it. He didn't care about it. It was worthless to him. And that's how how she feels. Of course, God had prophesied exactly that. That if, if you're going to continue to worship idols in my temple, I'm going to let it go. You know, I don't need the temple, says God. If you're going to worship idols in the temple, it's going to be destroyed. And it was. But then when it was destroyed and they're looking at it, they're like, oh, my gosh, what happened to God's love for the temple? We thought because the temple was here, he wouldn't allow it to be destroyed. He wouldn't allow Jerusalem to be destroyed. God says, look, I don't care about stuff like that. I care about your heart. And so here again, it, it's it's not that the temple was a booth, but that's the depth of emotion that the, they're trying to um, communicate. Beautifully done so here in Lamentations. Um, another thing that happens is in the in the word pictures, the portrayal of of good to worse. Um, we want reversals, and there's a whole series of them in Lamentations chapter four. So let's go to Lamentations chapter 4. And if you're a caregiver, then you've run into this because, you know, um, people will lament, you know, I used to have money and now I have none. I used to have a house and now I don't have any. I used to have a car and now it's gone. I used to have a family and now so-and-so's dead. And, and they, they go through to how great things used to be and, and how, how terrible they are now. Um, and that's very, very common in grief. Talk about how good I used to have it and then, you know, how, how horrible things are now. And we, we definitely see that in Lamentations. And Lamentations chapter 4, there's a whole run of them. If you start in verse 1, how the gold has become dim. So the, the gold, instead of being beautiful and sparkling and valuable, now it's become dim. To some degree, literally, because it's covered in ashes as the city is burned, you know, the, the ashes and the smoke dim the gold, but also it's it's worthless. You know, people, your your gold isn't going to keep you alive from the Babylonian armies. So the gold becomes dim. Verse 2, the people, the precious sons of Zion, once valued as fine gold, how they are regarded as clay pots. And the Babylonians just kill them willy-nilly. They used to be valued like gold. Now they're treated like clay pots. They're just stomped, and that's the end of that. Um, verse 3, even the jackals offer their breasts to nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has been become ostriches in the wilderness. The women couldn't protect their children, and in many cases they ran. In some cases, when their children starved to death, they cooked and ate their children you can read about that in Lamentations. And the ostriches in the wilderness, they the male and female ostrich guarded the nest and watched over the eggs. But when the eggs were hatched, then the female generally left and the male watched over the hatchlings and the female abandoned her young. And so that's the that's what's being pointed out here, that the women who used to be so caring are now like ostriches. They, they've they abandoned their young. Uh, verse 5, we talk about the rich becoming poor. Those who ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. 
Those who were brought up in purple cling to dung hills, any place they can go to get something to eat. So the, the rich and the, the famous and the wealthy now have, have nothing. Um, verse 7 and 8 are very interesting because they're the only verses in Lamentations that really focus on color. So if you look at verse 7, in trying to talk about how wonderful the nobles, the leaders, the the top layer, if you will, of Judean society, how wonderful they were, they're going to use brilliant colors. Her nobles were purer than snow. They were brighter than milk. You know, they reflected that, that white light. They were more ruddy in body than coral. Coral is that beautiful red-orange coral. Their form was like lapis lazuli, which is a blue stone that gets easily worked and chiseled, meaning, you know, they look great. So they're they're purer than snow, brighter than milk, more healthy looking than that red-orange coral, and they're, they're just chiseled like lapis lazuli, verse 8. But now their appearance is darker than soot. They are not known in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It has become like dry wood. And so the, you know, they've, they've gone downhill. Um, and verse nine, just one more, one more verse. And I, I really like this. We added to it in italics so people would understand it. It's very difficult to understand without a little help. But in verse nine, it says those killed by the sword are better off than those killed by famine. Of course, if you're killed by a sword, you die very quickly. If you're killed by a, a famine, then you starve to death, and it's very slow and very painful. So it, it's going to it's going to develop that. If you're killed by the sword, you're better off than those killed by famine, whose lives drain away. Watch the the printed text here: being stabbed by the fruit of the field. And when you read that in Hebrew, and it's like you're stabbed by the fruit of the field. What the heck does that even mean? See, so the Babylonians come in with their sword and they stab some people with the sword. But then there are stabbed by the fruit of the, of the field. How does that happen? The ground won't produce. So there's nothing to eat. So you're still going to die just like you've been stabbed. But you're stabbed by the, by the ground itself, by the fruit of the field that won't grow and won't support you. And so you have this beautiful picture about you've got a choice here. You're going to die. So you're either going to die being stabbed by the sword or you're going to die by the famine, being stabbed by the fact that the ground won't produce. You're stabbed by the fruit of the field. And that's a a beautiful thing. And that's verse 9. And then what happened because of that, people are starving to death and they're dying. Verse 10, the hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. Now, it doesn't mean they kill their children and boil them. But what did happen in the Babylonian fa- uh, famine and, and attack was that you know, children were killed or died of starvation. And then instead of just burying them, uh, the people ate them. And so the women were eating their own children and are aware of. And then um, the, I told you I talked to you about grief waves and grief. Let's go back to Lamentations one one. Because Lamentations 1.1 is a very important word. I've got good commentary on it. Verse 1, it's how, how the Lord has darkened. But really, 
this is this is it's not it's it's the word how and remember I said this is poetry and it's using words in a non-literal way. This is not a this is not a um, forensic question. You know how has the Lord done this? This is like we when we have something happen and we go why Lord why why and it's almost more of an accusation than a question. And that's what's going on here. How is a a shriek of pain? You see it when David uh, was lamenting Saul and Jonathan, and he said, how have the mighty fallen? And he doesn't mean how they fall. And that's easy to answer. They were killed by the Philistines. But it's like, how has this happened, God? How could you allow this? That was Saul. That was Jonathan. How, God? And it's this emotional scream. And it's, it's a cross between just not even knowing what to say and, and sort of blaming life and sort of blaming God. And it's this, this word that shows up and, and how, and it's a, it's a very important word. Um, get the same thing in Isaiah 121. How has the faithful city become a prostitute? Again, it's not a forensic question. He's, he's just kind of screaming from his soul and from his pain. And that's one of the things that we need to be aware of. If we're a caregiver and somebody's really going through grief, then they're likely to use the word how. They're likely to use the word why. Don't get caught up in thinking they're asking a question. They're not. It's it's an it's an outpouring of emotion when there's no other words that you can think of. Why, God, why? How did this happen? You know, I mean, I... I this really went through this, you know, you, you guys who know me well know that my son was in the Marine Corps in Afghanistan and was shot in the head, and thankfully he survived. Now he's partially paralyzed. And when we got the news from Langley that, that he'd been shot and that things started to sink in, it was like, you got to be kidding me. God, I pray multiple times a day. How? Why? And, and you know, you, you know there's no answer. But it's just this visceral thing that comes out of your soul and if you're a caregiver then you you watch for that and you're just there for people we're not giving people answers we're not trying to set there's there's no answers we're just there hey i'm i'm here for you i love you i care for you i'm here for you you know and we we do that thing um i want to show give you a couple examples to show you about how the grief waves occur if we look at Lamentations chapter 1, verse 2, in, in Lamentations uh, chapter 1, verse 2 says, She weeps, weeps in the night, her tears are on her cheeks. And so here she is crying, and then, you know, she gets into talking about things, the roads of Zion mourn, and, you know, or Jeremiah is talking about her, rather. He's the, the speaker. But then all of a sudden, you get down, you think, well, she must be over that. She's not crying anymore. And then you get down to verse 16. I weep because of these things. My eye, my eye runs down with water. And all of a sudden, you know, she's, they're crying again. And then you keep on reading and you're like, oh, phew, looks like they're over this. Praise the Lord, you know. And then you get to chapter 2, verse 11. And in chapter 2, verse 11, my eyes are worn out from tears. My bowels are troubled. You know, and, he, and again, so he, he they're back crying again. And then, you know, you get a little respite, and then down to verse 18. Um, 
Their heart cried out to the Lord, O wall of daughter Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Do not give yourself no rest. Do not let the tear of your eye cease. And so um, if you, you know, if you're uh, reading in Lamentations, I believe it's in Lamentations chapter two, verse one, that I, uh, chapter one, verse two, I'm sorry, Lamentations chapter one, verse two, that I give examples of how the grief waves come again and again and again on a whole bunch of different things. And one last thing, the thing I want to close with, I'm sure many of you have heard the the saying that his mercies are new every morning. And it's that, that's such a hopeful thing. You know, we're adrift. We're kind of in tragedy. Bad things are happening. We're like, but his mercies are new every morning. And it's interesting that if we go to Lamentations chapter 4, I'm sorry, 3, we go to Lamentations chapter 3, and then in Lamentations 3.22, because of Yahweh's covenant faithfulness, we have not ceased to be, because his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The 22 chapters in chapter 1, 22 verses in chapter 1, 22 chapters in chapter 2, 22 chapters in chapter 4, 22 chapters and 22 verses in chapter. Chapter 1 and 2 have 22 verses each. Chapter 4 and 5 have 22 verses each. Chapter 3 has 66 verses. And here, almost in the middle, in verse 22 and 23, his mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. So it's fascinating that almost in the dead center of the book of Lamentations is this fabulously powerful, encouraging word that his mercies are new every morning. Um, and that is always a hopeful thing, that in the center of our tragedies, God is there. God is there in the center of our tragedies. And I think that couldn't have made that up. He did that. So um, I, I hope this helps you have a, a gain a better understanding of Lamentations and that you would feel comfortable reading it. And certainly I think tragedy is going to continue. God has called all of us to be ministers and caregivers. So with that, Franco, I'm, I, I so appreciate you guys' attention tonight, and I'll hand the, the microphone back to you, Franco.